0: This month, Ravi Zacharias delivered the baccalaureate address at Liberty University, and I uh, pulled the video recording up, had time to listen to just some opening comments. He began his uh, speech by telling sort of an inside story that I knew would be a wonderful illustration for where we'll land today about a political prisoner named Andres Thomas. In the year 2000, Russia began releasing political prisoners— and in the midst of them was this man, Andres Thomas. He had been in prison for 55 years, if you can imagine. He was Hungarian and wouldn't stop talking gibberish to the officials, mumbling sometimes, sometimes animated in his speech. Nobody could understand him. They thought he had lost his mind, and some of the officials said that they ought to just go ahead and execute him since he'd grown mad, which gives you a little insight on their value of human life. But somebody said, well, at least let's bring in a psychiatrist to um, evaluate him before you execute him. So they went and got a Hungarian psychiatrist who spent a couple of days with him. And afterward, he came out with his report, and he said, you know what? He's not mad. He's not insane. And he's not talking gibberish. He's talking in an old Hungarian dialect. Your prison has nearly driven him mad. You brought him in here when he was 20 years old and put him in near solitary confinement for more than half a century. Give him to us, and we will make him well. They did, released him to these officials, and they put him in a wheelchair and took him away and restored his health. One of the first requests that this man made to his... Deliverers was for a mirror. He had not seen his reflection for 55 years. Can you imagine that? So they did. They handed him a mirror. He held it up to his face for an instant and then quickly put it away and buried his face in his hands and sobbed uncontrollably. What would it be like? To never see your reflection. Ravi said to start out with robust strength of, of youth and now for the first time in more than 50 years suddenly at a moment see what all those years had taken from you. Ravi went on with his characteristic sense of humor to talk about how we take for granted something like a mirror. He said, you know, we get up every morning, we do our necessary ablutions, we put on innocent forms of disfigurement, And we walk out looking like what we wished we did, but it's really like when you come back from a long journey, you realize you resemble your passport picture more than anything else. That's so true. He did ask this penetrating question, is there a mirror for the soul? Is there a reflection of what we should look like? And then he Went to the Old Testament and began to preach on Daniel, on the prophet Daniel's life. And with that, my lunch break was over. But I immediately thought of the apostle James, who said that the word of God is indeed a mirror for life, for the soul. In other words, we can honestly look at the mirror of God's word and it reflects back to us not only what we look like, but what we ought to look like, what we wish we looked like. Right in the middle of the third chapter of 1 John is a mirror. It's going to reflect back to us what we actually look like, and it will also challenge us regarding what we should look like. What we do see and what we want to see. What we ought to see and what we do want to see is a family resemblance, a reflection of somebody belonging to the family. Of God. And whenever you hold the mirror of the Word up, you also immediately notice things that need fixing, right? We were confronted with our, our spiritual complexion. We discover things that mar our reflection. In this spiritual analogy, John is, is going to make very clear that sin is the marring, disfiguring, destructive, Agent that distorts our reflection. It mars the image of Christ in and through us. In fact, I'll tell you ahead of time the subject of the sermon is basically sin. John is going to mention sin or some derivative of that word ten times in this paragraph, ten times in the next seven verses. He's going to talk about sin. And he's basically going to make it clear that we've all got to do daily diligence in relation to sin. Because it's going to show us our reflection. So there's no need hiding it. Just as a mirror doesn't really hide anything. So the word, the mirror of God's holy standard doesn't either. Let's expose it for what it is. And then let's deal with it. Let's just deal with it. Calvin Coolidge, I had clipped this away some time ago, was the President of the United States in 1923. He was known for being a man of few words. Evidently, I've never read his biography, but he was somewhat renowned for never using an unnecessary word. One Sunday morning, he returned from a church service, and a White House staff member asked him what the preacher had preached about in his sermon that morning. And Coolidge replied with one word, sin. The staff member waited for a little more information, and none was forthcoming. And so he said, well, what did the preacher say about it? Coolidge responded, he's against it. <laughs> there you have my subject and my verdict. We could pack up and go to lunch early, but not on your life, okay? This is the Apostle John. He's going to effectively ask and answer the question, what's wrong with sin? In fact, I know it sounds weird to say it this way, but he's going to answer the question, what's so bad about sin? And you think, we don't need to talk about that. I think you'll agree as we get through this that we indeed do. John's going to provide at least five descriptive propositions, I'll principalize them, that reveal why sin is so sinful, why sin is so bad, why sin is so wrong. And the first is this. It's wrong because sinning repudiates the righteous standard of God. Look at verse 3. Back up and get a running start. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he, Christ, is pure. So sin defies this pure standard of God modeled by Christ. Sin defies the moral and ethical parameters provided by God in his word. Now, if you've been a believer for any time, you've probably encountered scriptures that talk about or give you different definitions of of sin. Think of Proverbs 24 verse 9 it says the devising of folly is sin. Or John in 1 John 5:17 all unrighteousness is sin. He just sort of lumps it all in there. All unrighteousness is sin. James 4:17 says to the one who knows something good to do and doesn't do that good thing that's also sin. Sin then is repudiating, it is denying, it is disobeying. It is refusing to apply the standards established by God. So when he says in verse 4, everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. He's given us a loaded phrase. The word, in fact, sin used here, hamartia, literally means to fail to hit the target and that's typically all that's ever brought out, at least in, in my own studies and what I've heard, but that's actually the classical Greek translation or, or a definition of hamartia. It means to, to have a target. God places a target there on the you know, side of the barn. You get your bow and arrow, and you shoot it, and you miss it. Sin is missing his target. It's, it's aiming your life. Man, i got to hit the target, and I missed it. And we do that, by the way. That's a good definition. However, the New Testament takes that word hamartia and adds this element that's often lost in our studies. It is this added characteristic of open rebellion, an attitude of actual hostility toward God for putting that target up there. And it isn't so much you got your life aimed at that target and, oh, I missed it again. It's actually knowing that God has placed the target there of his holy standard and we willingly say, I'm going in this direction. If that's what you say is right, I'm headed there. That's the element of hamartia that, that John is, is bringing out in this defying defiance, this, this uh, revulsion of the standard of God it is willful rebellion and listen men and women sin is not an unfortunate choice it is but it isn't right it isn't an accident and we just couldn't help it and you know boys will be boys or whatever that's what we hear That isn't what he's saying here in fact go back to verse 4 he says sin is lawlessness it's like saying sin is sinful. But he's actually saying that sin, by the way, is the breaking of the law of God. It's doubly corrupt. Now that's going to cause an automatic problem in the mind of our own culture, and certainly that's trickled down into our own thinking. Certainly in our, in our generation today, it's creating tremendous confusion in the court systems. You cannot make moral arguments anymore. Our educational system. In fact it throws the whole of society into this awful state of confusion because you void you ignore the law of God and if you ignore the law of God and you reject the law written on your hearts Romans 2 you're in a mess and a muddle right you no longer know what's right what's wrong what's sinful What's acceptable? Well, maybe sin really is just some kind of genetic predisposition, some kind of inheritance of hormones, some, some adolescent behavior. Maybe it's excusable on grounds of a you know a deprived childhood. I think the right, the right things to eat, or or some cultural conditioning. It's only wrong because culture says it's wrong. Maybe maybe our sense of right and wrong is is just a relic of evolutionary uh, origin. I've heard that used by the way more and more. I've heard that argument used to excuse the promiscuity of married men who cannot help their adulterating. Why? Because it's really just an evolutionary leftover from the alpha male animal they descended from who is doing nothing more than ensuring the continuation of his tribe or his herd. He's just an alpha male. No, he's a sinner. And he's doing something bad. We're having the rise of uh, pseudoscience called neurocriminology. You hear about it often. In fact, more and more, where criminal behavior now is nothing more than the unfortunate result of genetic makeup. Well, their brain's that way. That's the way they act. They can't help it. Just how they're put together. In fact, if you followed the stories out of the most recent school shooting. It was explained in one national newspaper. It wasn't the headline. It was, it was the headline of an inside page. And in the headline, I thought they were joking. They weren't. The headline said, the genes did it. G-E-N-E-S. I thought they were sort of tongue-in-cheek or, or whatever. They weren't. They were dead serious. You would expect a, an eruption of anger over that justification, and none came. The shooter couldn't help it. The American Psychiatry Association, of course, has bought into this theory, has for decades been promoting it. In fact, I read just this past week, and and we've heard about it, and we know that they're coming out with their fifth edition of this manual called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders and put all kinds of things in there, and they take all kinds of things out, and, and it's taken 13 years to revise. And we're not surprised to learn how they're viewing incorrect or sinful behavior. But those who've seen pre-publication copies, such as one of our own Duke psychiatry professors nearby, said that the manual is now classifying temper tantrums in children as mental disorders, they don't need discipline, they need therapy. And I wish my parents had had that when I was growing up. I would have been spared an awful lot of suffering. You know, what confusion, right? What confusion. Dr. Tripp recorded in his book uh, a few years ago, I think 2004, 2005, he copied in his book entitled Shepherding a Child's Heart a report by the Minnesota Crime Commission released uh, this report on the untamed child. Now, about 40 years has so totally changed the perspective of our culture. I want to read you some of this report. And remember, this is coming from a secular commission on the issue of child rearing. And I quote, Every baby starts life completely self-centered and selfish. He wants what he wants, when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny these, and he seethes with rage, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. Keep that in mind. This means that all children, get this, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of infancy, given free rein to their impulsive actions, every child will grow into some form of criminal. We've come a long way. So that now a temper tantrum is really a mental disorder. The problem with this ever-growing perspective, by the way, We would expect the world to continue to shun sin and redefine it. We understand that inside these walls. The challenge for us is then in attempting to reach our culture with the gospel. You see, they don't have a problem with sin. They've got a disorder, some genetic predisposition that yields longings and actions that must be right because they feel them so strongly. The gospel, however, that you present to them does not present salvation from some kind of dysfunction. Or some kind of disorder, some kind of malfunction, some kind of alpha male virility, does it? The gospel presents a Savior who will save them from their what? I heard a lot of sss. Did you say self-image? Oh, sins, okay? Right, you can say that in here, it's okay. Sin. And what's so wrong About sin, you deliver to them the message that sin repudiates the moral standard of God exhibited in and through the life of Christ. All right, enough on that point. Sin, secondly, is tragically wrong because it depreciates the enormous sacrifice of Christ. Verse 5. You know that. He, Christ, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. In other words, Christ was sinless, therefore capable of taking away our sins. He was able to be the Paschal Lamb, the sacrifice, atoning for our sinfulness. And John says here, he came to deal with our sin. He appeared. That's a reference to his first advent, coming as a baby, living a sinless life, being announced as the Lamb of God who takes away the what? Sins of the world, John 1.29. He fulfilled that mission then by dying on a cross, the Lamb sacrificed once for all, John writes here, to take away sin. Literally, to lift up and bear away our sin. So you see, you get rid of the concept of sin... And you eliminate the need for a Savior. You also eliminate the potential of forgiveness. Like one secular author who transparently lamented, we have gotten rid of God, and now we have no one left to forgive our sins. You see, the tragedy of sin is that it depreciates the enormous... Sacrifice of God, it rejects God's glorious solution to our great problem. Listen to these thrilling words from Scripture. For while we were helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Do you get that? The ungodly. Do you qualify for salvation? Maybe you're wondering. Are you ungodly? Yes. Good, you qualify. He died for you. God, he writes further, demonstrated his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, you qualify for salvation? Are you a sinner? Yes, you qualify. Christ died for us then. Much more than having now been justified, declared righteous on Christ's account, that is, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, that is, God will punish unrighteousness. He will have either punished Christ and you in Christ and you're free, or you outside of Christ will bear the punishment all alone. And that punishment against an infinite God will take an infinite time to bear. Listen, you've heard this perhaps before, but I want to repeat it. Several commentators included it in their commentary. If if mankind's greatest need was education, God would have sent us a teacher. If mankind's greatest need was advancement in technology, he would have sent us an inventor. If mankind's greatest need was sickness, he would have sent us a doctor. If mankind's greatest need was finances, he would have sent us an economist or a financial planner. But our greatest problem is sin. So he sent us a Savior. So at the very outset, John says, go ahead and take out the mirror, hold it up, Take a look at your reflection. We've all got a problem. It's called sin. Let's call it what it is. But then, let's glory in the rescuing, dying, resurrecting, saving, forgiving Savior. Those who want to reject Christ and keep on sinning, as it were, John Warden's sinning's bad. Why? It repudiates the holy standard of Christ. Secondly, sinning depreciates the enormous sacrifice of Christ. Thirdly, Sinning indicates a genuine desire to walk with Christ. It indicates a lack of desire, I should say, genuine desire, to walk with Christ. Look at verse 6. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now that's an interesting verse. Did I read that right? No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen Him. Does John mean to say that now that we've all admitted we're sinners, that we're sinners until we come to faith in Jesus Christ and and then we never sin again? Some throughout church history have taken it to be that way. Like John Wesley in early Methodism believed that you could reach or attain sinless perfection. Others viewed this as willful sin. You know, John's talking about somebody who willfully sins, as if we don't willfully sin. But this is the willful sin. This is, this is a Christian, then, and, and a Christian is never one who, who sins willfully. It's never premeditated, they would, they would explain. It, it's accidental. Oops. And Christianity has accidental sin insurance, which is a great thing, so you don't have to even pay a deductible. You just, you, just, you know, you're, you're clear, you're a record. You never at any points. Your record remains clear. It was just an accident. And you're covered. Still others have said, there are about nine views, I'll give you about three or four, that John the Apostle is clearly saying that Christians don't sin. So, anyone who sins is either not a Christian or they were a Christian who just lost their salvation. Popular view. The problem with that view is That you're going to keep losing your salvation then. Because you're going to keep sinning. In fact, you already have today. So I'm speaking to a group of unconverted people and I'm among them. Right? You'll never be good enough to keep it. So others sort of agreeing with that viewpoint, that, that nuance, came along to redefine sin to try to settle the problem. I mean, think about it, if you include coveting or unkindness or impatience or selfishness in your list of sins, you're going to have to get saved every single day. So what we'll do is we'll make a list of sins, big ones and little ones. We'll call the the little ones venial sins, which is classic Catholic theology. And we'll call the big ones mortal sins. Incidental or venial sins don't even ever have to be brought up to the priest in confession. They really don't matter, no sweat, no problem. Mortal sins, however, forfeit, they write, the grace of justification. In other words, you're earning your salvation, you commit a mortal sin, you're back to square one, if not worse. So no one is ever really confident that they are indeed regenerated. So the key issue there with that view is don't do the big ones. Don't do the horrendous ones. Don't, don't kill anybody, either body in the freezer in your garage. You know, stay away from that. Stay away from cannibalism and witchcraft. And I, I looked up the list, by the way. Stay away from those, and you're good to go. The trouble is, of course, the Bible doesn't create those kinds of categories. Sin is what? Sin. 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 And the Bible doesn't teach repeated regeneration, either, or multiple spiritual rebirths. John 3 talks about being brought to life physically once and being brought to life spiritually once. In fact, the view that you can gradually overcome sin until you are completely sinless, and then, having arrived at that point, you you no longer lose your salvation, Directly contradicts what John has already said in chapter 1. If we claim that we're not sinning, we are deceiving ourselves. We make them a liar. In other words, if you claim to not be sinning anymore, you just told a lie, and guess what? You just did. You sinned. You may have noticed as well in your studies throughout the New Testament letters that the genuine believer, just as John will do here in a moment, the genuine believer, will be exhorted and challenged and warned against sinning. Listen, repeated exhortations not to sin would be needless if a Christian couldn't sin. And the promise to the believer that we can directly, regularly, daily, moment by moment, confess our sins to our mediator... We don't have to stand in a line with a turtle dove. We don't have to stand in line at some confessional booth. We can go directly now to God through Christ, our mediator. What good would that do unless we sinned and we needed his mediation? We can daily restore fellowship with God the Father. That would be pointless if what we needed was conversion instead of confession. So what does John mean in verse 6? No one who abides in him sins. Okay, what does that mean then, Stephen? I know, I've been, I've been stalling. I'm going to get there here eventually. All right, here's the answer. The answer is in the tense of his verb. He uses a present active participle. In other words, John is referring to someone who continually, habitually sins. In fact, his lifestyle is sinful. And he isn't talking about the big sins or the little sins. He's simply describing someone who maintains an ongoing, unrepentant, unremitting, unashamed life of sin. Sin doesn't bother him, and not walking with Christ doesn't bother him. That's who he's talking about. Keep in mind that John's definition of sin back in verse 4 is what? Lawlessness. He lives With this, oh God, there's the target, well then I'm going this way. That's my life. That person who has nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the standard of God, nothing to do with longing to meet the affections of of God through holy living, but says, I'm going to do exactly the opposite. That's my life. That person is self-deceived. But John is warning these believers of not being deceived. They may be unbelievers. He's certainly telling those who live this kind of life that they have nothing to do with God. They have no part of Christ. And they don't care about Him anyway because they're openly, defiantly rebelling against Him. Now, what John is going to do here in this paragraph is describe not two kinds of sin but two kinds of people. The defiant, rebelling, unbeliever who loves to practice sin and doesn't abide in or meaning commune with or fellowship with Christ. That's one category. And the other category for John, who is very black and white, is the obedient, redeemed believer who loves to practice righteousness and longs to fellowship or abide with Christ. What he's describing is Two kinds of people, and this is their bent. This is their desire. This is their love. He isn't saying that a Christian can't do something evil, and he isn't saying that a non-Christian can't do something good, but he's saying in general terms, this is the direction of their lives. Like a flowing river, there may be bends and turns and backward turns, but ultimately this is the direction their lives are flowing. John writes in verse 6 that a person who claims to have seen Christ, he's talking about faith, by faith, the person who claims to be knowing Christ, that is by faith and a relationship with Christ, and yet lives in open rebellion to God as a matter of life and longing and love is self-deceived. He's actually contrasting the difference between sinners, which we all are, and a lifestyle devoted to sinning. See the difference? That's the difference between sinning in life and living to sin. Let me illustrate it this way. I can remember as a 17-year-old, just a few years ago now, giving my life to Christ. And the summer before my first year of college, I landed a job with the town of Norfolk, working in their tunnel, their bridge system that connected Portsmouth with Norfolk and you'd come out of that tunnel, the traffic, and you'd stop at these toll booths. There were about five or six or seven of them, I can't remember. And I was one of those toll booth operators. One thing I learned was that money is dirty. By the end of a shift my fingers were just filthy. Uh, Beyond that, we would simply stand there for hours on end and collect tolls. And I worked next to a guy, on many occasions, about five or six years older than me, who was who claimed to be a believer. We talk about God every so often. He's a decent guy. I'll never forget one night as uh, we were standing outside our booths, kind of relaxing. We were working third shift, 2 o'clock in the morning. Not many people are there, 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. Not much traffic. and We're relaxing. And uh, I remember him pointing across the water uh, to the other side at uh, that huge Omni hotel that had been completed. Not in the uh, too distant past. And he pointed over there and he said, you know, I cannot believe I'm, I'm here working tonight when all the fun is taking place over there. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, look at all those hotel rooms across the water at that restaurant. He said, can you imagine all the parties going on over there right now? Can you imagine all the couples hooking up after the parties in those hotel rooms and to think that I've got to be here when I could be over there. And I remember thinking, man, here I am as a 17-year-old fighting sin, and this guy, a believer, is longing to sin. I mean, he's actually upset he's got to work because he's missing sin. Sin. So that's the person John is describing in his paragraph. Somebody who is longing to sin. Someone who is pining to sin. Someone who is upset that they ended the day without getting a chance to sin. Where the genuine believer, perhaps this is you, comes to the end of the day and pines away over the fact that you did not live as righteously as you wanted. That's the difference. That attitude invalidates any true, real relationship with Jesus Christ as John describes that one. They don't know Christ. They don't want to know Christ. And they don't want fellowship with Him either. That's what John is describing. Here in this verse, Spurgeon actually preaching to his congregation on one occasion said he believed that a large majority of churchgoers were merely unthinking, slumbering worshipers of a God they did not know. Frankly, that is my fear as well. The genuine believer longs to be holy He pines for the day when he doesn't have to battle sin anymore. He gets upset that he didn't live for Christ like he really wanted to live that day. He doesn't pine and long for the day when he gets to do something wicked. Now let me address something here. You're probably thinking it. If we add other Scripture as commentary to what John is writing here, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that it's possible to be an unrepentant, rebellious believer. In fact, it's possible to be all tangled up in sin. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, remember? You see somebody entangled in sin, go restore them. He doesn't say go convert them. Restore them to fellowship. However, the difference is that the sinning believer, as opposed to the sinning unbeliever, the sinning believer has been promised that he's heading for discipline, right? That form of discipline can take a number of different forms. It, It could be the discipline that we find in the Word of God. Whenever you get into the Word of God and you hold it up and you see a reflection, it disciplines you, doesn't it? Just like this morning when you sit up and you looked in front of the mirror, you effectively discipled your face. You disciplined your face. We're all happy you did. Me too. So we come to the Word and this disciplines us. We can be disciplined by the church, living openly in unrepentant sin. Paul wrote to that assembly, remove that unrepentant man from your assembly, 1 Corinthians 5, 2. We know he was a believer because over in the next letter, 2 Corinthians, he repents and returns, ending that illicit relationship. We can be disciplined as well by God the Father. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, encourages us by saying, if you are not disciplined by God, you are not legitimate. True sons and daughters at all. And, and that discipline, again, can come in the form of a number of, of avenues. It could be simply nothing more than a troubled conscience. Haven't you been pummeled by that? The Spirit of God within you, using your conscience to discipline you. It could be the discipline of lasting consequences. It could be the discipline of the loss of ministry effectiveness, the, the loss of future reward, even the loss of physical life. It's possible to sow sin unrepentantly that God takes you home. 1 Corinthians 11, some in the assembly are already asleep, that is, they're already dead because of their unrepentant sin. John will deal with in chapter 5, don't turn there now, we'll get there in about 10 years, but John will deal with that subject and he'll say, sinning unto death. So don't misunderstand here the correct interpretation. Just because a Christian can sin without losing his salvation doesn't give the genuine Christian, you know, this consolation of a free hall pass, "Oh boy, I get one of those a day." No, a genuine believer is not going to have that attitude at all. Why? Because he knows he understands with growing concern that sin is bad. Sin is sinful. Sin is a repudiation of the holy and pure lifestyle of Christ. Sin is a depreciation of the enormous sacrifice of Christ. Sin indicates a lack of a genuine relationship with Christ. Sin is really bad for all those reasons, but there's more. In fact, I'm only halfway through my outline. How are we doing? You can be dismissed early, actually, now (laughs) poster child. All right, let's keep going. I'll try to speed up. Fourth, sinning demonstrates allegiance to the enemy of Christ. If it isn't bad, that's really bad. If it isn't bad enough. Look at verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. Now he's writing to Christians. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. That's the flow of their life, the desire of their heart. Just as he, that is Christ, is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Not the beginning of his creation. God gave him the ability to choose, but from the beginning of his rebellion. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. Now he's going to expand the reason for that first advent and him dying on the cross. To destroy the works of the devil. Now, destroy does not mean annihilate. And that ought to be obvious in your life and mine, right? Sin has not been annihilated. But it's a verb that refers to Christ's victory over Satan at the cross, where Jesus Christ crushed the head of the serpent. He effectively broke the serpent's back so it can no longer coil around death and the life of those who've come to faith in Christ. He has rendered the devil effectively powerless. So now none of the works of Satan ultimately defeat the saints. We have been delivered already from the kingdom of death and darkness and delivered over to the kingdom of life and eternal light. So why then? This is what John is saying. Little children, why would you ever want to be involved in sinning? Because when you're involved in sinning you're actually supporting the enemy of Christ. The one Christ came to crush. We are giving our allegiance to every time we sin. The enemy of Christ who delights to dishonor Christ, to reproach his name, to discredit his gospel, to bring scandal to this church. Why would we ever want to join sides with the devil. Someone openly rebelling against God, someone sinning is acting like the devil, openly rebelling in an attempt to unseat the authority of God. Just as Satan did, Isaiah 14 gives us the details. He, in that coup attempt with those millions of angels attempted to dethrone God. His agenda has not changed. Although he knows his ultimate defeat is secured now because of the cross, his eternal incarceration in hell is also certain. He's read through the end of the book of Revelation 2. But since then and up until now, one of his chief delights is to tempt someone to withhold worship from God, to defy God in rebellion. John is actually countering the false teaching of the Gnostics who were saying that sin really wasn't that big of a deal. They were saying that God doesn't really notice. All of your sins are venial, that is, they're incidental. John counters that. He's saying that God actually notices, and oh, by the way, so does the devil. An open rebellion is that moment when an individual effectively joins forces with the devil in dishonoring God. That's why sin is so sinful. That's why it's so bad. Fifth, sinning violates the internal life of Christ. Verse 9, no one who was born of God practices sin. He's basically restating verse 6. He cannot sin. That is, continually without desire for repentance or confession. Why? Because, he adds this nuance, his seed abides in him. That is, God's seed abides in the believer. Again, the present tense of these verbs can be expanded and understood. He cannot continually sin. He cannot continually practice sin. Why not? John adds this new thought. Because within the believer, there is this new life principle. This seed Of God, he calls it here. What Paul calls, for the sake of the Colossians, the new man. The spirit which is alive now. It was dead in trespasses and sin, and Jesus Christ brought it to life at regeneration. Now with that comes new patterns, new appetites, new battles, new struggles, new objectives you might be tempted to think that, you know, that seed of God within me, that new man could really, really grow. If I could just get away from all forms of temptation, if I could just, you know, I could develop patterns of holiness and allow this seed to really flourish, if I could just get away from unholy people and an unholy culture, and you know, that's the problem. It's all them out there. One author in his commentary told a humorous story of why that won't work. I'll share it with you. A man decided to get away from all the clamor and temptation and join a monastery. So he joined one he'd heard about, had really demanding commitments for those wanting to take their vows. And the initiates had to serve in the monastery in total silence. Only once every five years would they be allowed to speak and then they could only say two words. This man thought, that's perfect. No phones ringing, no clients calling, no temptation, no billboards, no credit cards, no television, no people. So he joined. For the first five years, he didn't say a word. At the end of that time, he was called into his superior's office where he was told he could now say two words. And he complained, hard bed. (laughs) Thank you, I'll make note of your observation, his superior said rather stiffly. The man went back to his duties and for another five years didn't utter a word at the end of that time his superior asked him if he had anything he'd like to say in two words and he said yes I'm I'm sorry he didn't say yes that'd be one word he said bad food well we'll make note of your observation for another five years he didn't say a word His superior called him in then and asked him if he had anything to say before taking his final vows and the man said I quit his superior replied, well, I'm not surprised you've done nothing but complain since you've got here. <laughs> Look, joining a monastery isn't going to solve your problem. You know why? Because you bring you in there. Wherever you go, you bring your heart. We enter a sinful world, the Puritan said, and we bring into that world our sinful hearts. You develop a heart of purity and holiness and habits that are well-pleasing as you allow the seed of God within you, this new life to flourish. You feed it. This new nature. You listen to it. We have, as one author put it, the urge now not to sin. I love that. We actually have within us the urge not to sin. We still battle and fail with the urge to sin, but now we have a new urge not to sin. Where did that come from? It's the seed of God. Peter calls it the implanted word. It germinates. It's nurtured by the indwelling Holy Spirit within us, growing and developing this new nature, this new life, this new man. And that new nature wants to stay away from sinning. Why? Because sinning is bad. Because sinning repudiates the righteous standard Modeled by Christ, it depreciates the enormous sacrifice of Christ. It indicates a lack of desire to know Christ or walk with Christ. It demonstrates an allegiance to the enemy of Christ, and it violates the internal work of Christ. That's five. We have six. Ready? Here we go. Lastly, because sinning obliterates the distinctiveness of belonging to Christ. Look at verse 10. It's a sermon all by itself, but I wanted to squeeze it in here. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. They're distinctive from each other. That's what he's saying. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. John just kind of throws everything into the, into the mix, into the kettle. And he says, this is how it's really obvious that we have the children of God and the children of the devil. Again, this is the direction and the bent of their thinking and their longing and their pining and their loving. Unrighteousness, righteous. The children of God love righteousness. The children of the devil love sin. They defy the standard of God. Some time ago I read about an MTV special. In fact, I read some of the transcript two-hour special that profiled what a variety of well-known actors and musicians thought of the idea of sin. But they thought about what the church considered sinful. It's Fascinating to read some of this. They asked one recording artist if she thought pride was sinful. And she responded, pride is a sin? I wasn't aware of that. They asked a famous actress about pride and she said, I don't think pride is a sin, I think some idiot made that up. They asked a member of a top-selling band if he thought lust was a sin, and he said, Lust is what I live for. It's what I got into the band for. Another musician was asked if anger was sinful, and he responded, Anger isn't a sin, anger is necessary. When asked about pride, he responded, Pride is mandatory. And the MTV program concluded predictably and yet rich with irony to me as I read it. They ended the program with this statement, and I quote, The most evil sin, so they still think of sin, it's out there. But the most evil sin in the world is the killjoy attitude of those who think sin is offensive to God. I think John would have something to say about that. And John says that's where it gets obvious. We view sin entirely differently than the world around us. We submit to the accountability of God, the accountability of God's Word, the, the accountability of God's Spirit, the accountability of God's people. We want more than anything to hold up the mirror of the Word of God and, and, and see a family resemblance and to deal with the sin that's exposed in that reflection because we belong to Jesus Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us, Paul wrote, who redeemed us from every lawless deed to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He did all that for us to make us members of his eternally forgiven family.